Hello, everyone. Welcome to Joe's Boys, the podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I am your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Morgan Bim. Morgan is a writer and a PhD candidate in the School of Gender, Feminist, and Women's Studies at York University. Hello, Morgan. Hello. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm well. Yeah. How are you? How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. I don't have Omicron yet to my knowledge. So that's, that's always a positive. Do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and your very fascinating work? I would love to. So as you mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate up at York University here in Toronto, which for those of you who aren't familiar with grad school, which why, why would you be? <laughs> um, it basically means that I've done the thing, I've written the dissertation, and I'm just kind of hanging around waiting to defend everything and, and get out, basically. <laughs> My own research is on 2000s music cultures and specifically the girl culture that led to the mainstreaming of 2000s indie rock. So I've kind of always been invested or kind of always been interested in this idea of, I call them like girly texts, those bits and pieces of culture that are either produced by or for or about girls specifically, which, I mean, dovetails perfectly with what we're talking about today. Absolutely does. And I am well into Morgan's (laughs) dissertation and it is really good. There are playlists for every chapter, which is a first for me in a dissertation that I have read. So well done, Morgan. Very proud of and excited for you. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your relationship with Little Women, just beyond the fact that you look exactly like Winona Ryder, which I'm realizing for the very first time on this call. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we can we can circle back to that one. Okay. Uh, yeah, a lot of the books that I read as a kid, I don't really remember a time in my life when I didn't know about <laughs> Little Women or like I didn't identify on some level with Joe. I remember I had I forget the exact edition, but I had like a special kids edition that was abridged and like a little bit simplified with illustrations <laughs> that I read. I don't even know when, probably as soon as I could, and then eventually graduated to kind of the the chunky one that we're all we all know and love. Yeah, and then <laughs> I mean beyond that, obviously we all know it's been adapted approximately seventy three times. So yeah, yeah, I grew up with the nineties movie version with with Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon, and yeah it's just kind of always been part of my cultural lexicon, I guess. And then I imagine the Greta Gerwig version. I mean, we've talked about this. It, it awoke something in both of us, I think. I think it yes. awoke a lot in a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was really, yeah. it was really wonderful and really special. I think to like see the text updated. Mm-hmm. I think like every generation has kind of had their version. So yes. it was really gorgeous to kind of see that in theaters and I saw it multiple times in theaters yes <laughs> um, and just realized that it was being kind of like played with and kind of updated in this like really thoughtful really intentional way yeah I know we're we are all big big fans in this house I will say over the holidays I watched the Greta Gerwig version on the plane going over to visit my parents and then I watched the 1933 version with Katherine Hepburn with my dad and my stepmom because my dad had never read Little Women and didn't know what it was about. And I just, because I'm doing this work, I wanted to share it with him. And I just knew that Greta was going to be too advanced for him. Well, I guess that leads me to my next question, actually, which is which March sister are you? And for the purposes of this show, Lori is a March sister. So that's on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I kind of already alluded to it, but mm-hmm. I think I am a Joe 
through and yeah. through. Yeah. I think Little Women and Anne of Green Gables kind of meshed in my early childhood to like provide this really weird, but I think very yes. like common foundation mm-hmm. for my self-identity where I was just like, <laughs> being a writer is the thing to be. Yep. Yes. And, you know, at anything else that happens is, you know, just icing on the yep. cake. So talking through the different adaptations of Little Women, like the history of Little Women adaptations is very much like a history of Joes. Yes. Yeah. And I love them all. But like I said, I think I think Winona holds a special place in my heart. I know that the director of the 1994 Little Women, she wanted to challenge kind of the tomboy interpretation of Joe, which is interesting to me because that, that seems so foundational. What she ends up doing is kind of Joe is this really flamboyant theater kid who's like very artistic and creative. She really pulls out those elements. I can understand why you relate to that, Joe, because that is so you. As a queer person and a queer family, how did Joe mold that identity? How do you relate to Joe now? Now, what do you see in Joe of that identity? Yeah. Geez. Yeah. Can I swear, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, like dude. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I wanted to be like, Jesus Christ. But yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, it's not really a question, I guess I'd thought about through that lens, mm-hmm. but I guess mm-hmm. in addition to maybe kind of shaping baby Morgan's sense of self as like yeah. a writer, I think Joe also maybe did a lot to kind of yeah, kind of like blast apart those expectations, I guess, for like what I thought girlhood or like womanhood could look like, which was really mm-hmm. interesting. I think it's really gorgeous. We don't get a ton of examples of female characters, particularly from that era, who kind of do this thing where they kind of straddle the divide and kind of play with that in really interesting ways. And like you said, I think every version kind of tackles it a little bit differently, interprets it a little bit differently. But I think that's totally part of that history of Joe's, how her gender is taken up, how her sexuality is kind of interpreted, responds in many ways to kind of the historical conditions of the era. We've talked about this on the show before. Louisa May Alcott is on record saying, I have fallen in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. So there is that. She did have a couple of relationships with men. So that's not entirely true, but like a letter happened. That's her like looking back on her life. I think and, maybe it's yeah, that like yeah. bisexual femme thing where you're just like, yes. oh my God, all women are perfect. <laughs> we just like worship you. And then whenever it comes to men, you have like one type and it's like really weird. And like all of your other queer friends are like, the fuck is wrong with you? You know? <laughs> That might actually be like the closest encapsulation of Louisa May Alcott's sexual deal that I have ever heard. So thank you for that articulation. Seriously. Honestly, deeply relatable. I feel like all of the queer femmes in my life are just like, yeah, I like guys, but they have to be like, you know, X, Y, Z and like just weird. She didn't want to marry Joe off the Lord to please anyone, but she devised a funny match in Friedrich Barrett. And people were like, what is it? She's like, I like him. I like this weird old man. So it's like that March Simpson meme. It's like, I just think they're neat. Yes. (laughs) I think they're neat. Yeah. What I found refreshing as well is with this most recent Little Women adaptation, Greta Gerwig was kind of speaking the subtext aloud, especially in kind of interviews surrounding the movie. There's an interview with, I think, The Advocate where like they're talking to Saoirse Ronan about it. And she just like very frankly says, yeah, Louisa May Alcott was probably at least bi. (laughs) Those words at least bi. And I'm like, I love that. We're so used to like talking around these subjects when it comes to historical figures or like adaptations of classic literature it's just really refreshing to see that frankness well it's really interesting right yeah not yeah. put on like my gender studies hat here, no please that's why you're here <laughs> obviously so much of the language and so much of the ideas that we have about 
sexuality as like identity Mm -hmm. is like a fairly recent development in the grand scheme of things like there would have kind of been none of that yeah none of that vocabulary basically like at the time in the 1860s and certainly queerness has always existed yeah and I think one of the things that's been interesting is that queerness is so built into the story yes even before sexuality became what we understand it Mm -hmm. to be now Mm -hmm. pre-stonewall all of the adaptations leading up to 2019 they knew they they dabbled with it even down to like the casting of Catherine Hepburn in that 33 version Uh, rumors and kind of discussions of her sexuality were like rampant um, through her entire career and so the fact that Joe has always kind of been this quasi not even quasi like queer coded character (laughs) you're like oh okay this is cool something's happening here absolutely I mean you said that they didn't have the vocabulary of queerness certainly they didn't have terms like bisexual lesbian transgender but it's shocking to look back and realize the frankness with which they would still kind of discuss those elements of their identities you know I I already quoted Louisa May Alcott saying, I love pretty girls. (laughs) So there's that. That's very frank 19th century admission of that. And we also know that in the same interview where she's discussing loving pretty girls, she also says, I feel as though I am by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body. So she knew that about herself. And her family also understood that this was, you know, simply just part of Lou's deal. Louisa May Alcott in her private life, in her private correspondence, in her journals, would refer to herself as Lou or Louie. All of her friends and family did as well. They would refer to her as a son, a brother. I'm going to say this every episode, so I apologize if you're binging this all the way through, future listener, and you hear me repeat it a lot. She understood this about herself. It was a real and meaningful part of her life. I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad that we can talk about it. Thank you to, you know, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Gerwig, all the people who paved the way to let us talk about it. Also, I think important to mention that the director of the 1933 version, George Cukor, was also a like a known gay man in early Hollywood. The history of queerness <laughs> and the history of little women, the Venn diagram's a circle. Something that struck me about Cukor's version was the <laughs> fact that the male characters, and particularly those male characters that like are, I think, kind of typecast as like a bit stodgy and boring, like Bear or like Mr. Lawrence, these guys are having so much fun. Yes. <laughs> There was like more more play and like more room for the care they demonstrate for the mar- the marches. And yeah. I think that was something that is gets a little bit lost or like a little bit muddied in the in the 94 version, I think. Yeah, it's it's a gay man's take. And I think he there's maybe naturally just greater acceptance of flamboyance and playfulness in men and in male performance. So with that, because I mean the star of the show today is the Lawrence boy. Morgan, do you want to just go ahead and tell us, do you want to break down what happens in this chapter? Yeah. The chapter opens with Meg and Joe getting ready. We get to watch them kind of do the very sisterly thing of, you know, getting dressed and doing each other's hair. And Joe is complaining the entire time because she doesn't really want to go. And then they go to a New Year's Eve party. And while they're at the New Year's Eve party, Joe's been warned against trying to dance too much because she stands too close to fires and her <laughs> back of her dress is just an embarrassing atrocity. And so she ends up in kind of like an adjacent room where she finds Lori, the star of our show, also kind of awkwardly hiding from the main party. They've already kind of met as neighbors, um, but the two kind of properly introduce themselves. Mm-hmm. And importantly, I think, have their first conversation away from any kind of public or yes. kind of societal you know whatever (laughs) and then they dance they have like a silly little dance because away from the the main party space nobody cares about joe's dress 
And then, yeah, the chapter kind of concludes. We learn that Meg has sprained her ankle by wearing silly mm -hmm. shoes. And then Lori gives them both a ride home in his carriage. Yeah, Lori calls an Uber and they go home. <laughs> <laughs> the night's over. This night's over. Yeah, Lori is briefly welcomed in and gets to meet the whole family as well. Yeah, at the end. Which is, I mean, yeah. maybe one of the most charming scenes in the Gerwig uh, oh, version. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much for that summary. I am so excited to get into this one. Like I'm just vibrating out of my skin. I, <laughs> I have I have the book open here. The very first thing I want to highlight is that Joe is up in the attic eating apples, reading a novel, crying over a novel, wrapped up in a comforter, enjoying the quiet and the society of a pet rat who lives nearby. Scrabble is his name. I definitely forgot about Scrabble. Scrabble is, <laughs> I think this may be the only thing we hear of Scrabble. Which I just love. I mean, do do we think that there is like just one rat named Scrabble, or is it just like anytime there is a rat, Joe is like that's Scrabble and that's my friend? What do we think? Very first thing to talk about. Very important. Speaking as somebody who lives in a house that was built in the 1880s and <laughs> who frequently has rodent neighbors, shall oh, I no. say? Hanging out less so less less so since we have the cats, but there's never just one. And so okay. I I tend to I would tend to side, I think, with the second theory. Yes. I agree. Yeah. I agree. When I went to Orchard House, which is the Louisa May Alcott House Museum, they had in the gift shop little scrabble statues of the rat dressed up in different little women costumes, which I did appreciate. That's a that's a deep cut. Incredible. Yeah. So the first thing, the first iconic scene that makes it into every adaptation here is the scene where Joe burns Meg's hair off. She's very femme and is very concerned with looking pretty. And I think, oh, it is, it is actually Amy who suggests Meg is weeping, wailing with despair, and Joe is groaning with tears of regret. Amy is the one who goes, it's not spoiled, just frizzle it and tie your ribbon so the ends come on your forehead a little bit and it will look like the last fashion. Amy, Amy comes in. innovator. Fan yeah. innovator. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then we hear that like when they're all getting dressed up, Joe is said to be wearing a stiff, gentlemanly linen collar. So even when dressing up in her, you know, finest woman wear for this dance, she makes sure to have a, a little gentleman touch. We also learn that she has spoiled her gloves. She spoiled her dress. Yeah. I think clothes are used in such an interesting way, definitely in the film adaptations. And I mean, definitely in, in Gerwig's version specifically, even in the books, I noticed the same line about the collar and I was just like, oh, there's like all these little signposts here. Even whenever Joe's going out into the world and is going to be on full display and expected to conform to these societal ideas of what young ladyhood looks like, she's still kind of finding ways to fuck with that and like bring some of herself to the party which is really beautiful. Yeah, I love that for her. Yeah, a, a stiff gentleman moving in collar and a white chrysanthemum or two for her only ornament. And this is compared to Meg, who's in silvery drab with a blue velvet snood, lace frills, and the pearl pin. Meg also puts on high-heeled slippers, which will- uh, Be her downfall. The like punishing of Meg for being feminine. <laughs> it, it recurs later on. I mean- which, Do you have any thoughts about that? I'll just say internalized femphobia is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And I think we've all, we've all been there. So <laughs> Meg is like, serves me right for trying to be fine about the hair and then gets the sprained ankle for wearing the high heeled slippers. Can right. she catch a break? And then they're entering the dance. Meg is kind of giving Joe a little manners lesson in ladylike manners. Winking isn't ladylike. Hold your shoulders straight. Take short steps. Don't shake hands. If you're introduced to anyone, it isn't the thing. 
And then Joe says, how do you learn all the proper quirks? I never can. Isn't that music gay? Which she doesn't mean it like that, but <laughs> we hear you, Joe. <laughs> You're just bumping Robin. Just <laughs> they walk in, it's a discotheque. And then <laughs> it's like Robin into Carly Rae Jepsen. Greta Gerwig, I owe you my life, but also why didn't you do that Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette thing and actually, you know, bring it, bring in some Carly Rae, you know, don't be shy. That'll, that'll be the next, that'll be the next adaptation. Yes. The next adaptation, Joe and Lori can like go dance to Mitski out on the porch. I would, I would like to see it. So yeah, the, the first pages of this before the dance are really about Meg and Joe both trying to fit themselves into both the physical appearance of womanhood and the decorum of a lady. And I wondered if you had, as a girl's scholar who studies those kinds of patterns, I wonder if you had anything to speak to on that. I don't know. I mean, for full disclosure, I'm not <laughs> a historian of this era, little to nothing about, <laughs> you know, the late 19th century. Aside from the fact that, as I mentioned, um, I live in a really old house. Yeah, the, the thing that I would just say about that is the idea of a girl as a figure or as a societal kind of mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. much like we were talking about sexuality, right? Yes. That language and that idea and that kind of container for mm-hmm. identity is such a new thing, largely tied into a bunch of boring stuff like capitalism teenagers suddenly having buying power in the mid-20th century you don't need to get into that but what I will say is I think like up until a certain point in western history girls were it's right in the it's in the title of our show right girls (laughs) were kind of just little adults there was no kind of in-between space liminal gray area and so after a certain point I think it was very much about trying to just kind of conform to this idea of adulthood and womanhood and obviously failing because like who is good at that not Joe that's for sure (laughs) so I think this idea of them kind of trying to like squash themselves into that mold to varying degrees of success I mean it's kind of the heart of the book in a lot of ways yeah yeah I think puberty and I think this moving from girlhood to adulthood. I think that's challenging for anyone. I think, you know, I I think obviously it's especially challenging for people we would consider trans, right? Here we get some very keen dysphoria from Joe. So as they enter the dance, Joe, who didn't care much for girls or girlish gossip, stood about with her back carefully against the wall and felt as much out of place as a colt in a flower garden. Half a dozen jovial lads were talking about skates in another part of the room, and she longed to go and join them, for skating was one of the joys of her life. She telegraphed her wish to Meg, but the eyebrows went up so alarmingly that she dared not stir. You know, she she does not care for girls or girlish gossip. She longs to go and join the dozen jovial lads to talk about skating. She wants to go and be with the boys as one of them, right? Because later on in this paragraph, a big redheaded youth approaches her corner And fearing that he meant to engage her, she slips into a curtained recess. She's not interested in male sexual attention, but she does really yearn, it seems, for male companionship. Yeah. Which is, it's as she's slipping into that recess that, which is interesting, you use the phrase liminal space. She slips into this literal liminal space, (laughs) which is this little alcove with a curtain around it where no one else can see her. And in there she finds the Lawrence boy. The whole chapter is a goddamn metaphor, Peyton. It is. The whole thing is a goddamn metaphor. And I think that it's interesting Mm -hmm. and significant that Mm -hmm. their first real interaction as friends Mm -hmm. is taking place in this space that is adjacent to, but apart. Yes. Right? Yes. 
And maybe, I mean, I haven't followed this down the rabbit hole. Greta Gerwig went one step further and actually took them outside the house. They're not even in the house in that version. They're on the porch, fully apart. Yes. Um, Yeah. I think that's not an insignificant thing to note here. No. Yeah, absolutely. Very significant. And in the screenplay, which I think I I did share this with you, Morgan, in that scene, when they go outside and they're dancing, her not stage directions, I guess, screen directions, she writes, sometimes Joe is the woman and sometimes the man. Same with Lori. Yeah. Like she gets it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. What's significant about this for me is Joe, she doesn't care much for girls or girlish gossip. She feels as much out of place as a colt in a flower garden, which is interesting because when Louisa May Alcott years later said, feeling like a man in a woman's body, she was appending that as a comment to, as a child, I felt like a horse in a human's body. <laughs> so it's interesting that this is then the metaphor she uses for Joe is that like Joe feels like a colt in a flower garden. It's the same thing she says to feel like, I don't know, I feel like a man in a woman's body. Just like when I was a kid, I felt like a horse in a kid's body. She's not at ease among the girls. She can't go and join the boys, although she longs to. And she stumbles into this third space and finds Lori, (laughs) who is also, I'm going to use Greta Gerwig's phrasing here. She says that Joe and Lori find each other before they've committed to a gender. And I think that's such a beautiful phrasing of it because they really do have this space. They're away from each other's social strictures. One of the first things that they say is, he says, how's your cat, Miss March? Because he previously returned her cat. And she says, nicely, but I ain't Miss March. I'm only Joe. And he says, I'm not Mr. Lawrence. I'm only Lori. It's established beforehand in the very first chapter that Joe has shortened her name to make it boyish. And then Lori, obviously, at least to most modern North American readers, that very much reads as an exclusively female name. So she says, Lori Lawrence, what an odd name. And he says, my first name is Theodore, but I don't like it for the fellows called me Dora. So I made them say Lori instead, which is interesting because thing one we learn about Lori is that other boys tease me and call me Dora. Interesting. So I made them say Lori instead. I didn't like being called a girl's name, so I picked another girl's name. It's just very like, it's very sweet. The trans resonance, the queer resonance is radiating out. Something else that always stands out to me about this scene Mm -hmm. across all the versions, there's such an element of play here. Greta Gerwig captures this really gorgeously Mm -hmm. in the scene that she shot where they are having what I can only describe as moshing. And so I think it's really, really fun that across the versions, there's kind of this idea of playing in the like in the 1933 version they (laughs) fence with fireplace pokers like they have like a little duel (laughs) i love that you brought that up at this point in human development teenagers were just supposed to act like little adults right and there's this moment right after joe comes in where she is trying to be polite and easy and she says i think i've had the pleasure of seeing you before and he laughs outright for joe's prim manner was rather funny when he remembered how they had chatted about cricket they've had this other encounter again without anyone looking where they were really able to be themselves and kind of be at ease with each other he knows immediately that joe is putting on this polite veneer and he's he laughs he's like that's not you and the mask comes down and they're being themselves, going out and moshing. What you said also reminded me, there's this beautiful moment in the Gerwig movie. How many times are we going to say that phrase? (laughs) They are dancing outside on the porch, and there's a moment where there's a window that they have to pass in front of, and Joe goes in front of it, easy as anything, right, dancing. But Lori kind of hesitates, and Joe has to, like, urge him across the window where people might see, and he just does this very free little pirouette thing. And I just, I love it. They went out here to be alone and not be seen, and this is kind of her being like, no, no, it, it doesn't matter if they see you dancing like a ballerina. He's a former ballet kid. Damn, Timothy, the <laughs> spotting is on point. Nailed yeah. it. 
his mom is a ballet dancer. That makes a lot of like, sense. He does, and he went to LaGuardia. Shout out to LaGuardia. He took dance classes, ballet on point. Timothy Chalamet, Black Swan 2, when? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. That's very silly. He's kind of more at ease with femininity around the March sisters than he is around the boys. She asked him, oh, I wish everyone would say Joe instead of Josephine. How did you make the boys stop calling you Dora? He says, I thrashed him. It's an interesting little peek into Lori's backstory. He doesn't seem to fit in with other boys. We know that he's not really allowed to play with other neighborhood girls as well. He's just a very lonely kid. He's been bullied. I love her. Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting choked up. Um, well, he's like, you know, he's an orphan as well, right? We don't leave enough space for talking mm -hmm. about Theodore Lawrence's childhood trauma. They've been through a lot. Yes. I like confidently using they, them pronouns for Lori. His father was kind of this Boston Brahmin wasp, and he married an Italian woman, and Grandpa Lawrence did not approve of the marriage. So Lori is half Italian, and like his mother wants to be a musician, and Grandpa Lawrence is like, you can't be a musician, you can't play music, I don't want you to be like your mother. It's kind of this concerted effort from top down to like stamp out any kind of feminine influence in Lori's life. It's exciting that he gets to encounter Joe and then encounter the rest of the family. I've come around to it. I think Amy and Lori makes a lot of sense. It's femme for femme at the end of the day. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I think I think absolutely. One of the great things about the Gerwig adaptation is mm -hmm. hashtag justice for Amy. Like, yes. I think we yeah. get so much more insight into how and why that worked mm -hmm. rather than just kind of being blindsided with it like in previous yes. versions. One thing I wanted to pull out too is <laughs> In rewatching the, the 94 version. Yes. Only the best. Uh, <laughs> Morgan overprepared. Which I love. Yeah. <laughs> There's a line once Joe and Meg get back to Orchard House mm -hmm. and Meg's having her ankle iced up to hack yes. by Marmy. Joe's kind of shepherding <laughs> Amy up the stairs. And Amy has this moment of panic where it's just like, but he's a boy. <laughs> and the line, I shit you not, uh -huh. that Winona Ryder delivers is, He's not a boy, he's Laurie. Yes! <laughs> so again, I mean, yeah. whatever. Liminal space, every version knew in its yeah. own way, right? And kind yeah. of played with this idea of these two characters meeting, falling <laughs> in love with each other on some level, yeah. and really kind of acting as a safe space to play. It's true that they love each other, right? And I think it's also true that a marriage wouldn't work because it would require them, or, or at the time, Joe really feels that it would require them to be husband and wife in a way that she's just not comfortable with. And that's sad. It's going to end this utopian, genderless teenhood. It's going to end for both of them. And that's very sad. But, you know, mm. we're at the beginning. It's beautiful. It's rosy. They're, they're dancing around. Let's, let's go back to there. Let's go back there. Let's, <laughs> let's go the back porch. there. Let's remember let's go back to the port they were listening to david bowie will they feel why that didn't make it into the final cut i don't know greta come on okay it continues in this vein for a while we get we do get this physical description uh -huh. which i want to highlight uh -huh. of laurie which is that he has curly black hair brown skin big black eyes long nose nice teeth little hands and feet tall as i am very polite for a boy and altogether jolly so i mean like this is not it's not really consistent with the physical depiction of lorries that we have seen on stage and screen is the curly black hair, the brown skin, and the big black eyes. You know, I love me some Timothy Chalamet, but that is not it. I will also say I was surprised. That, again, I, I didn't grow up with the 94 version. I only watched it very recently, and I was very surprised to see Christian Bale as Laurie because I know him as 
Batman and Patrick Bateman. I know. And so he's Lori. And then when he's proposing marriage to Amy, is he going to kill her? What's going on? <laughs> I will say, yeah. I think the Joe Lori pairing of Winona Ryder and Christian Bale mm. yes. has yeah. the best chemistry. Okay. Okay. Like the best romantic chemistry. Okay. Okay. Of the versions I've seen. Mm -hmm. But I think that Timothy Chalamet is the best Laurie in terms of the way he delivers the role through his like physicality and actual acting. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Timothy, I think, transformed the role in the same way that Florence Pugh lifted a car off a baby playing Amy. Same thing with Lori. Same thing with Lori and Timothy Chalamet. That man has never sat in a chair normal once in his life. (laughs) You know, like he just kind of goes around just kind of like draping himself onto things. Him and Serge as Joe, they're just like puppies with each other. Yeah. It's like the platonic chemistry that Christian Bale and Winona Mm -hmm could only dream of. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I read a wonderful middle grade graphic novel adaptation of Little Women called Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. It takes place in modern day and the Marches are a blended family. So Meg is black and Joe is white. And then Beth and Amy are biracial. It's like their parents met one another and got married. And then Lori next door is Latin American. I mean, that is truly the only time I've ever encountered a Lori of color. for lack of a better word, when yeah. it kind of seems like the book is serving that up on a plate, right? <laughs> in in much the same way that like our ideas about sexuality mm-hmm. has changed, right? Our ideas mm-hmm. about race have historically been yes. very stretchy, which is not to say that it's any less real or that like, mm-hmm. the material effects of race and racism are not acutely yes. felt. Mm-hmm. But at the time that Louisa May Alcott was writing, Italian wasn't white yes you know, yeah no I, I know that yeah. we think of Italian being kind of lumped in with with yeah, whiteness sure. now it's interesting the way that like the original text the book kind of does play with that a bit as I said we learned that Laurie's grandfather did not approve of his son marrying an Italian woman he doesn't want Laurie to be like his Italian mother a lot of the mid-century opposition to immigration was led by the Boston Brahmin wasps against Italian immigration specifically. You're picking up on it and it's right. I want to also say, in addition to that middle grade novel I talked about, Bethany C. Morrow's novel, So Many Beginnings, is a reinterpretation of Little Women that takes place in a freed person's colony and the entire cast is Black, Ooh. which is very cool. So that is another Lori of color. The Gerwig version very briefly touches on Lori being Italian, but not much is made of Lori being an ethnic other in this period. And I would love to see an adaptation that really goes deep on that. Maybe that's not the most legible for modern day audiences. What if, you know, he's he's living with his grandfather in the North during the Civil War, and his grandfather did not approve of the you know, relationship that produced his grandson and he keeps his grandson hidden away from anyone and doesn't let him talk to anyone. And he has curly black hair, brown skin, big black eyes. To me, it seems really ripe for an interpretation of Lori as, as being biracial. And I would like to see it. I'm putting that out there. <laughs> well, if anyone is listening and wants to give me that, what else is next? Lori is probably an Aquarius. Oh, okay. Same one. <laughs> which, which is the most, I mean, I've never been less surprised about anything in my life. Right. He says 16 next month. So tell me, what does that mean? What does it mean that Lori is an Aquarius? Well, it's a New Year's Eve party. So next yes, month would yeah. be January. I can't see him as a goddamn Capricorn. <laughs> so yeah, weirdo artist boy who wants to, mm-hmm. you know, shirk mm-hmm. his family business and go play sad boy music. 
Yes, yes. For anyone who's listening, pet hobby of mine, fingering out the birthdays of uh, Little Women characters. Yes. If we ever figure out Lori's birth chart, we will let you know. We also get, <laughs> oh, I suppose you're going to college soon. I see you pegging away at your books. Joe blushed at the dreadful pegging, which had escaped her. Also foreshadowing. <laughs> dreadful pegging would be a great punk band name. Shout out to the person who wrote that one really good fic on AO3 about Joe and Lori. It was like the only person to like get it right. Hmm. Pegging has something to do with it. I will say that. Anyway, moving right along. This is a family pod. No, it's not. This is, is it a, it's a, it's an older family podcast. It's like PG-13. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we learn, ah, oh, Joe says, how oh, I wish I was going to college. You don't look as if you liked it. And Lori says, I hate it. Nothing but grinding or skylarking. And I don't like the way fellows do either in this country. So once again, Lori is at odds with boys. Once again, Joe wants something that is only available to boys. Some of that is opportunities being denied to women and women not being able to become educated. But it sounds here like Joe is also just really yearning for the social aspect of college to be among a bunch of boys, whereas Lori hates the grinding and skylarking and the fellows. If this were a fairy tale and they could just swap bodies in this moment, I think perhaps they'd be. In a way, that's kind of what's happening, isn't it? They're making room for one another's little yeah. little weirdnesses. I mean, yes. I think I think in a lot of ways the relationship just mm-hmm. functions as like it's like yes, it's kind of like this liminal space of play, but it's also mm-hmm. like each other's way into mm-hmm. the identity or kind of the the personhood that they're like yes yearning after, right? Like Lori yeah, wants yeah. a family. Lori mm-hmm. wants to be free to kind of be his swoony, his yes. swoony musical artsy self. And Joe is, is Joe wants to go to grad school. Yes. Joe wants, <laughs> Joe wants to live the Morgan Bim path and, <laughs> and read and read and read and write, right. It's absolutely true. You said, you know, he wants to swoon. And then when she asks him what he does want, he says to live in Italy and to enjoy myself in my own way. It's like, yes, I just want to be a layabout. And what about it? He's a little less dead. I just, my heart is so full of love for these characters. Lori kind of gets a family as far as like a mother and siblings from the marches and, and someone to play with, which is what he doesn't have at home. And then when Joe goes over to Lori's house, obviously the first thing she notices is the giant library with every book she could ever want. So like they really are giving one by sharing opening up their homes to each other they really are giving one another what they've been missing yeah Um, (laughs) this question of like spaces I think is like Mm -hmm. such a strong theme and I think so much of it has to do with the fact that Louise Knight Alcott obviously wrote it and wrote it in and based it off of her actual house and her actual home it's not just a metaphor right it sometimes feels like kind of being beaten over the head with it Joe wishes she could have his library yeah you know and that's that it's not even metaphor at that point it's just that's what it is yeah I have been to Orchard House there is no library it's well there's sort of like the dad has kind of a study what I also learned about Orchard House which is interesting is that it was originally a much smaller house and there was like a rotting falling apart house a little ways up the hill that had been abandoned Mm -hmm. and her dad somehow dug the foundation up and like rolled it down the mountain and hammered the rotten old house into the little house. So it's just a Franken house. They were really poor, okay? Don't tell me this. My main Omicron COVID wave coping mechanism has been watching uh-huh. Victorian farmhouse restoration videos. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, 
So one of the inspirations for Lori, there are a couple. One of them was Julian Hawthorne, the son of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who Louisa May Alcott had a blood feud with. I love how yeah. dramatic everything was in that particular of Massachusetts at this time. Really was like you know they, just they a just, casual blood feud. Nathaniel Hawthorne were good friends with Franklin Pierce, who led the United States into the Civil War, trying to play both sides of the aisle on the slavery issue. Louisa May Alcott said, "I'm not going to read Nathaniel Hawthorne's book that's dedicated to Franklin Pierce because I don't approve." And then Nathaniel Hawthorne resented Louisa May Alcott's huge success as a children's author and belittled it hers. But the, they lived right next to each other. She was friends with his son. Nathaniel Hawthorne was substantially more well-established as an author, wealthier. It's possible that the fabulous Hawthorne Library did exist, and she did go and hang out in it. The other inspiration for Lori was a Polish boy who she met when she was abroad, and they were very good friends, maybe more than friends, for the extent of a trip through France. And one thing that I found in my archival research, which is very curious, I don't know what to make of it, because she kind of insisted, and the scholarly understanding is that there's no one real life Lori. He's kind of a bunch of nice boys mashed together. Sure. But in her archives, I found a check for $400 made out to this Polish boy. And in the memo line, it said Lori of Little Women. So I don't know, he was getting that coin for being Lori. <laughs> Yes. You have a really cute nickname. I was saying Polish boy because I can't pronounce it. <laughs> it was something like Ladislas Wisniewski, and I apologize to any Polish speakers. And <laughs> he was called Laddie because that's easier to pronounce than Ladislas. Okay. And Laddie, Lori, you can see yeah. how they get there. Yes. Fun fact, there's a later reference in this book to ugly Russians. And the scholars think that she wrote that in because they were oppressing the Polish and Laddie got into her head. And I... <laughs> <laughs> She's really like Russians. They're ugly, right? <laughs> Solidarity. Solidarity. If you're, not, so, if you're not willing to drag your friends' enemies in print, I mean, are you really friends? What's the point? What is the point? It's like the time a friend of mine wrote a disparaging article about running into my ex at a concert. Oh! Like that, that's peak. That's peak friend yes. solidarity. Yes, that's the point. Why? Why bother writing at all? <laughs> if you're not dragging your, your friends, haters. So I'm realizing now the dance that looms so large in so many Little Women adaptations, it's less than a paragraph mm. of Joe and Lori dancing. They have a grand polka. Lori teaches her the German step, which delights Joe. That's foreshadowing for Bear, I'm sure. And then when the music stops, they sit down on the stairs to get their breath. And Lori is talking about a student's festival in Heidelberg. And then Meg's like, I sprained my ankle. So they get two dances in, in the hall, in the long hall out there where they can dance grandly and no one will see us. So they don't, they don't get to dance for very long, which is, which is really too bad because Meg sprained her ankle, the high heel turn. She's being punished for being a woman. Joe is like, I knew you'd hurt your foot with those silly things. Way to go, empathetic Joe. And then Lori offers his carriage and they all ride back home together. Joe immediately spills coffee on her dress <laughs> so that the front of her dress is as bad as the back. She says, oh dear, what a blunderbuss I am. And then Lori says, can I help you? There's a lot that happens mm. in this chapter. And I think- It really is, yeah. Like you already pointed out, <laughs> I think I think in a lot of adaptations, it kind of just gets reduced to the dancing, but- It's really the introduction of Lori to the March family. And it, I think it's notable from a gender perspective. Lori has a full cup in one hand and a plate of ice in the other. Lori's like, how can I make myself useful? How can I be of service? Let me help you and the maid. I love this kid. I just- <laughs> And in contrast to Joe, who is just attempted to help and like poured coffee all over herself, 
her entire life is one big slapstick cartoon. <laughs> She's going to slip on a banana peel on the next page. Something very deliberate throughout this book is kind of Louisa May Alcott subverting gender expectations. And I think this is a really clear example of Joe, the girl, being a huge clumsy mess. And then Laurie being a perfect little house guest who's being of service to everyone. Meg pronounces him a nice boy. They have bonbons. They're playing games. And then Laurie heads out. We kind of get this last little bit, which is like just, you know, just the sisters, just the family. Oh, yes. Gender wise. Meg says, it really seems like being a fine young lady to come home from my party in my carriage and sit in my dressing gown with a maid to wait on me. And then Joe says, I don't believe fine young ladies enjoy themselves a bit more than we do. In spite of our burnt hair, old gowns, one glove apiece, and tight slippers that sprain our ankles when we are silly enough to wear them. And then Lou breaks the fourth wall and says, and I think Joe was quite right. We love a fourth wall break. We love a fourth wall break. She does love to break the fourth wall. <laughs> Meg is talking about class. And it's interesting to see the ways that class and gender kind of collapse into each other here. Being a fine young lady is... Here, I mean, it's incompatible with being poor. And then Joe says, fine young ladies don't enjoy themselves a bit more than we do. And, you know, and Joe is talking about burnt hair, old gowns, one glove apiece, tight slippers. So she's, you know, she's talking about those physical signifiers of womanhood, but it's also a nice little trans Joe wink. Yeah. I'm not a young lady. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, this idea of like yeah. failing, queer failure is such an integral part of mm -hmm. Joe's character. Yeah, and I do love that so many of the fourth wall breaks that we mm -hmm. get even just in this chapter, is kind of around this idea of failing and kind of the comedy in trying to put on this refined yes. young lady drag to go yeah. out in public. Mm -hmm. Just after Joe kind of butchers Meg's hair, the very end of, of the chapter, or the, of the paragraph here, Joe's 19 mm -hmm. hairpins all seem to stick straight into her head, which yeah. is not exactly comfortable, but dear me, let us be elegant or die. <laughs> She's just like, it's funny. It is That's funny. So funny. It's incredibly modern too. You know, in a way she's kind of like whispering to girls. She's like, are you fed up with this too? Like, isn't this a pain in the butt? Like What's that's a line straight out of Fleabag. Like, yes. Dear me, let us be elegant or die. I mean, what's interesting to me, Meg is also having a hard time with the young lady drag as well. It's not just Joe. It's not just Joe's specific tomboyish dysphoria. It's hard for Meg as well. And it's hard for really? class reasons. It's hard for being a woman reasons. I, I think it's important to, I, I like that this is included here because it, the, the argument you, you sometimes bump against talking about was this historical woman a trans man, right? It's, it's always just been really hard for women. And if a woman didn't want to be a woman, of course she didn't because it was the olden days. Both of these characters are talking about how it is, you know, it is uncomfortable to be a fine young lady. And and I'm not very good at it. And only one of them is like, I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy, right? Like it's, it's like, actually, yeah, like womanhood is hard for everyone. Like trans identity can exist within that as well. There are four little women here. Only one of them has this desire, right? Yeah, yes. it's kind of like yeah. different dimensions of the same or a similar yes. issue that I think a yeah. lot of, especially yeah. like lower class yes. girls yeah. were like running up against, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, girls of color as well. Like, I don't think girlhood or womanhood lets anyone off easy. <laughs> Historically has not been a very forgiving or welcoming yeah. category. No. Well, and, and what's also interesting is that simultaneously womanhood and this world of women is like a really welcoming space for Lori, right? Who comes from this very like all male household all boys schools and like Lori is able to find refuge and self-expression within it. So it's a, it's really 
textured in that way, finely textured, which I appreciate. And there's one last thing I want to say while we're on the subject of Megan gender performance, which is that I have not seen it, but there is a web series done by the same people who made the Lizzie Bennett diaries, you know, that online. Yeah. They did they did a little women one and made Meg a lesbian, Ooh. which is interesting to me. How do you feel about that? How do we feel about the possibility of lesbian Meg? Oh my God, let me just sit with that for a second. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, I love it. Hmm. Obviously, I'm I'm always here for queer reinterpretations. But yes, ah, wow. I can see it as far as Megan on Tinder or whatever, and a girl gets into her Tinder results, and she's like, "Oh, you look nice," and they swipe and start talking. And this is the first girl that Meg ever dates. Marries her first girlfriend. That's what I'm saying. Like they U-Haul after like a month. It is an elaborate proposal. It's all over yes. Instagram. It's picked up. Yeah. Wow. Meg brings her home for Christmas after a month of dating. And Joe is like, you can do that? Like, what? Like, like hold on, hold on. This is my thing. I think. Like, it's that feeling when you feel like a bit upstage, yeah. like you thought you were the gay cousin, and then you find then, out there's another one. You're like, she, God damn it. Meg marries her first girlfriend, adopts kids. And I think Joe's life is, is a bit rockier. Like, yeah. Meg is like, if Meg yeah. is a lesbian, Meg is like Pinterest lesbian. Yes. I think Amy is the one who goes on foreign exchange, has several queer experiences abroad and comes home and is like, guess what, guys, I'm bi. Amy <laughs> is Alexa Rose in Shit's Creek. Life, life continues on as normal, but every once in yeah. a while she'll be just like, oh, this is exactly like that time that I had yeah. some of those two girls in Spain and everyone else is just like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, don't worry about it. And she just rolls on like nothing has happened. Yes. Yeah. And again, Joe is like, I'm, why am I being upstairs by all of my siblings? Like Amy goes on foreign exchange and comes back with an undercut. I can't do this. Like. <laughs> I'm the gay sibling. It's me. <laughs> with a septum piercing. Ah! And and she's like, well, Beth, at least you're straight. And Beth's like, what? No, I'm not. Like, <laughs> where'd you get that idea? Beth is a prolific AO3 author. Absolutely. She, probably she and, and Joe are like collabing. Sure. Yeah, you yeah. know, wow, this got away from us. Uh, yeah. So in conclusion, every March sister is queer. Yeah. And including Lori, who is a March sister. Obviously. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk, listening to my podcast, literally. <laughs> okay. And do we have final thoughts, Morgan? I love how much this text plays with the idea of girlhood and expands it and leaves room for kind of mess within that definition. And I love too, like, I think one thing that I appreciate so much about the 2019 Greta Gerwig version is that it brings back this visual that we have of the March sisters actually performing for an audience of girls, which is so, (laughs) so wonderful. Like we lost that in the nineties. version. So I think just this idea of, you know, little women as a story that's really invested in this idea of girl audiences and queer audiences being the ones who kind of make culture happen. Yes. Um, is something that is at the heart of the story and definitely at the heart of why I think it has been such an enduring and such a special story for so many people. Absolutely, absolutely. For so many people, little women, little men, everyone in between. Absolutely. There is plenty of room under the umbrella for you all. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful 
wide ranging chat. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, where do you want to be found? Social media? Yeah, absolutely. I'm at Bimbles on both <laughs> Instagram and Twitter. You can find me there, B-I-M-M-B-L-E-S. Mm -hmm. um, and I also have a website, morganbim.com, where you can learn a bit Ooh. more about my academic alter ego. Morganbim.com. Okay. Sorry. I am on Twitter, twitter.com slash Peytonology. And my website is peytonthomas.ca. Well, Morgan, thank you again for stopping by. And I will see you hopefully soon.